We should entertain the empirical possibility that hunters are in business for their health, a finite objective, and that bow and arrow are adequate to that end. Marshall Silence. Welcome to episode 10 of Warfare, Advancement, and Revisionism. My name is Preston Floyd, and as always, I am your host. So, uh, here we are at the first episode to kind of view Earth at 10,000 B.C. Um, there are a couple things I want to mention that I forgot in the last episode or didn't elaborate on. So, C.J. Thompson is short for Kristen Jurgensen Thompson, and he was head of the Danish National Museum between 1825 and 1865 when he died in office. I think I said in the previous episode that he was there until like 1870. No, he had been dead for five years at that point. And again, this is the man that uh, kind of came up with our current three ages system of like prehistory. Stone, copper, or I'm sorry, stone, bronze, and iron. Uh, I should also mention that he did take other factors into account when he was dating objects and not just material type. He did take things like artistic style or manufacturer, um, but the main factor was the material. Now, before we begin, there is one thing I should make note of at the outset of what is kind of part two of this project, and that and that is that there is still no written record of events or people um, that we are aware of, but there are more examples of artifacts, and they're much more recent, at least when it comes to archaeological and geological time frames. We will still be guessing and filling in gaps of our knowledge with supposition, and but these will be backed up by more evidence. That said, please remember that neither language nor artifacts have evidence of monoculture or races in and of themselves. I will be doing my best to be as inclusive as, inclusive as possible, but I will miss many groups, and this is not intentional at all. My hope is to include other groups as we get closer into the present, as well as update you about the peoples that I am going to be going over starting now. Also, if you have any corrections to make, please provide a source so I can verify and check. This is kind of a hard area to go over in terms of history, so I probably will make some mistakes, um, but you know, if I find anything in the future, I do plan on having some episodes maybe go back and dealing with new developments. Now, to start off this phase of the podcast, we're going back to Africa. We have checked in a couple of times after Homo sapiens had left the continent successfully to show inventions or evidence of what we were capable of create, uh, capable of creating uh, when there were milestones to list. But now we're going to try and focus on the actual people that remained and what factors they were dealing with now that the Holocene period has begun, which is the current period that we're still in. <clears throat> now I'm going to try to be as clear as possible when it comes to talking about these people and give caveats here at the outset, and I will be refreshing these again in the future as needed. Africa is a diverse part of the world, then as now. Ethnicity and linguistics are important when discussing these groups, especially because it isn't important to them. There are some groups that may speak languages 
that are extremely similar in the same family, but who are not related all that much to each other, at least genetically. And there are groups that may be more closely related that speak entirely different tongues. This state of affair isn't new and isn't even unique to Africa. It's a common feature of tribal societies that live next to each other. Hell, it's still a feature in modern states as well, even if we don't think of these things as being the same or think of them as being more complicated somehow uh, in the modern world. Another factor that I need to address is that there is no writing from this time frame anywhere in the world, at least as far as we know. We haven't found any proto scriptures. We still just have art. How then can we differentiate and explore the different groups of this time and place? Well, we have the archaeological evidence, and as we're closer in time, we have more of it to work with. We also have linguistic studies and the oral and mythological stories of the of this area to go, of the areas that we're going to be going over to go by. I personally don't have much of a problem with linguistic studies as some historians and archaeologists do, and though I do question some leaps that they make, I'm not willing to discount you know a couple hundred years of academic discipline out of hand. And when it comes to oral traditions. I think all oral traditions have some level of truth if you can sift it out. Uh, and that level of truth may be small and obscure by metaphor, but I think there is at least something there that is that has a basis. Then of course there is DNA, which is a very useful scientific tool to fill in gaps left by these other disciplines or to confirm or disprove some of these disciplines as the case may be. And finally, I should refresh how people in Africa are living. They were living as mankind had always done, and indeed as every other human is still living at this time. That is the life of a nomadic hunter-gatherer. Now, I gave a kind of rough outline of what that entailed in an earlier episode, but I need to reinforce that we're not sure exactly how that worked then, and while modern anthropologists have studied peoples that live that lifestyle into the modern times, it is important to remember that these people have had contact with sedentary agricultural and industrial societies, and this has affected them in ways we cannot fully categorize or understand. Another major factor when it comes to this lifestyle is the environment. As we talked about, especially in the previous couple of episodes, Africa has been largely isolated from the worst effects of the Ice Age and probably saw less megafauna die off overall, or at least more slowly than the rest of the world, which means the people there would be less affected by the climate. And I'm going to go into more detail on that front as needed. So all that said, let's kind of get down to the people this episode is going to focus on. Now I think it's fitting to go back where we did those some odd 300,000 years ago, East Africa and South Africa. We will start with the ancestors of the modern day Khoisan peoples. These people's ancestors inhabited southern, south, I'm sorry, southeastern and southern Africa and even parts of the Kalahari Desert in the southwest. And when I say peoples, I mean peoples. This is a blanket term 
used to describe a number of different ethnic groups that have lived traditional pre-agricultural lifestyles into this very day. Some of these groups don't share a dialect or a language, much less a recent common ancestry. What gets them all kind of grouped and lumped together today is that they have a traditional way of life that is dying out for a number of reasons. Colonialism, industrialization, climate change, just, you know, political tensions, the whole nine yards, resource management, everything. The name... Uh, and the other, the other factor that gets them lumped together is that all of their languages use click consonants. The name is a combination of koi, koi, and san. And I haven't been able to confirm for the modern koi koi groups, but the san prefer to be referred to by their the name of the specific tribal group they belong to. Um, at least when you're speaking to them directly. But I know a lot of advocacy groups, uh, they still use the phrase Khoisan or just the San, just when referring to those specific people. And there is some kind of cooperation between the two groups now when they're fighting for you know, rights and you know, legal courts and that kind of thing. Um, but that said, the Khoi uh excuse me, the Khoi Khoi groups are herders and pastoralists, um, and the San groups are hunter-gatherers. Uh, they're both nomadic. Um, San is the name of, that the hunter groups were given by the Khoi Khoi groups. It means one who picks things off the ground, and it, it has become kind of a derogatory um, kind of use. And we will talk about this kind of rivalry and when it actually begins later in time. But at 10,000 BC, I doubt the Koi predecessors would have any qualms about being one who picks things off, of, off the ground. They would be doing the same thing. It's vital to the hunter-gatherer lifestyle. That said, the Koi and San predecessors might not have been meeting all that much, if at all. Population density is rarely high in these types of societies, at least in times of plenty. You would probably have groups no larger than 100. At, there might be times like winter um, that it saw kind of the extended kin groups or neighbors that spoke you know, basically the same language with a little bit of variation, uh, band together to find partners for children, exchange gifts, stories, or possibly to kind of form new permanent groups from smaller ones that might not be able to kind of hack it, you know, hack it on their own. Um, they might settle disputes between these kind of groups, uh, but eventually they will split again. Now, that and again, that is the interactions in those groups. So within the song groups and the koi koi groups, they're mostly interacting with each other. Uh, and it's possible that they did interact with each other, but that possibility is going to be limited to small disputes 
or maybe trade along the fringes of their traditional territories and kind of hunting grounds. The Khoi were probably taking more of the eastern half of the south with the San groups more focused in the central and western sections. And uh, later developments will cause this change. We'll, we'll get into that in future episodes, and I'll point that out you know, when the time comes. Still, you might expect, because of the click inclusions in their language and relative closeness, that they all sprung up from the same ancestor group or language family. Well, in 10,000 BC, they did share a common ancestor uh, somewhere between 178 and 128,000 years prior. Uh, but any interbreeding between the two groups would be limited until later events forced them closer together. As for language, um, most linguists say that these various groups have been using click constants in one form or another for tens of thousands of years. And these cliques are not flourishes to their language, and they are as essential to their speech as, you know, A, B, C, D, R to ours. Uh, these cliques can differentiate words the same way we would use consonants to change top to hop to pop and so on. Now, I hear you ask, if they all share this feature, then surely they must all be related. Well, according to most modern linguists, no, they aren't. Initially, it was believed that they were, uh, you know, when Europeans first came into contact with these groups in South Africa. Uh, but as more people have dived into their study and linguistics has kind of progressed, uh, it's been seen that there is actually no way to truly connect them to one another in the same way as you could in other language families. There's very little overlap in vocabulary. They share four words in total. Uh, chin, throat, lungs, and wound. Uh, some of the languages use female and male endings like a romance language. Some of them have separate tones or they have differences in word order, things like that. So some of these languages are actually organized more similarly to Chinese uh, and others to Romance languages. And I want to be clear that that is just an example of what they're similar to. They are not related to any of those languages either. Uh, so don't, don't think I'm claiming that, you know, these languages are the predecessors of Indo-European or um, the Sino uh, family of languages. Now, it shouldn't be said that these groups are just surviving. Um, they're extremely good hunter-gatherers. Uh, in fact, they're probably the best hunter-gatherers. Um, at least they were the most successful. Because until a couple of thousand years after this point, 10,000 BC, they're probably the largest and most populated or most populous groups of hunter-gatherers in the world. I think genetic studies on kind of descendants of these two or three groups, depending on how they're divided, are uh, they you know they they show more genetic diversity, which means they've gone through fewer population bottlenecks. They have faced less disease 
war, famine, whatever basically cause a rapid, sudden drop in population, these people have avoided it. And some of the techniques they used to kind of get this status or to be as successful as they were, um, I mentioned briefly in one of our last couple of episodes, but um, about the remains of like ricin found in a cave. Uh, the San groups are extremely well adapted and knowledgeable um, to all the plants and animals in this region. Um, they were making kind of poisons uh, for their uh, arrow tips and spear tips uh, very early. Again, I think ricin was, I want to say it was 25,000 years ago, I think is what it was. Uh, note 24 is what I have in my notes. Um, and But again, my theory, again, you, we're not finding the exact oldest item uh, of a specific find like this. So, you know, at least 24,000 years ago is the estimate. They may have been doing it earlier, probably were. Um, in fact, uh, that uh, ricin applicator they found was in the Limbombo Mountains, the same place that one of those supposed um, like tally stick bones, uh, specifically, of course, the Limbombo bone. Um, and that's the one that is the oldest, the one between 44 and 43,000 years ago. Um, and that's the one, again, I don't think is quite as definitive as a number system as the Shango bone is, but I do think, you know, it was definitely used for some type of, um, some type of tally stick. So these people definitely, you know, they're extremely knowledgeable of their environment. Um, they use uh, castor beans uh, and flowers to create kind of this early version of ricin. They also use, um, I forget the name of the fly, but they will take that fly larvas, like cock their heads and like use the, the blood to kind of like coat the arrows. Uh, and this allows them to, um, you know, hunt smarter, not harder. Essentially all they need to do is kind of nick an animal with one of these things and just need to wait it out. Um, they just and and because of that they've become again I, I think in general humans were probably much better trackers uh, in general I think everyone probably had an ability um, but in their environment at least um, these early peoples would you know they'd probably be able to do the same thing that their modern descendants could do you know follow tracks based on an individual animal they can tell if an animal's uh, heavier or lighter. Um, you know, they know which animal they hit. Uh, they just, again, they just follow along slowly. Just take it, take it easy. But once they hit something, um, you know, they just, they just have to follow along. Just not even close. They can just follow the tracks, take the animal, you know, where it's falling. Uh, the only thing I think they'd probably have to worry about was, you know, if they um, ran into another, um, you know, predator. Uh, along the way or if they got there before they did or if the, maybe another a human group got lucky and got there soon. 
Yeah, so I mean, again, just to kind of reiterate, they're just extremely talented and intelligent hunters. Um, and um, I, I would like to go kind of into their kind of religious beliefs. Um, I know I've kind of done that with those uh, caves in the um, in the uh, southern parts of Europe. Um, the San are making their own paintings. Um, they are doing more, I think, open air paintings, like in the light. Um, they have really nice rock carvings. They have things like giraffes and um, other things that they'd be hunting. And of course, they even have representations of humans. They're not extremely detailed um, because their canvas is what they're working on is not quite, you know, necessarily as large. Um, but their humans are more figures, like stick figures, um, but they have, you know, identifiable weapons and items that they carry. Um, and the animals, you know, they typically, it seems like the animals are more detailed than the humans. Um, which I'm not sure what that says. I know there are several theories about it, but personally, I, I don't feel strongly about any of them, one way or the other. Um, but uh, this episode is a little bit uh it's about 20 minutes or so uh i should go ahead and call it here i think um next time we'll kind of go into what um i i kind of want to talk about their um kind of their religious beliefs but the problem with that is so what we know from these people all of their kind of uh, mytholo mythology and like oral traditions all come from today's uh, Khoisan groups and that's not necessarily a bad thing I'm sure that they've carried on some of their, uh, their traditions but they have been heavily influenced by both um, Muslim and Christians moving into the region um, you know or you know moving into the regions where they were um, so they, you know, they do have, you know, they have had influence on that end. But um, I'm kind of kind of see what I can find for the next one, and then just maybe go into kind of a brief and kind of point out what may be, um, I guess, what they kind of picked up from these other groups. Um, but yeah, and then that will be the end of. Um, the Khoisan groups, and then we'll kind of go into um, Central Africa and I guess um, Central, kind of the more middle and then northern part of East Africa after that, and then we're going to go into um, West Africa and then North Africa, which, um, you know, the Sahara at this point is going to be green again. Um, but again, that's a couple episodes down the line. The next episode, again, I think we're going to do, um, um, we're going to finish up the Khoisan predecessors. Uh, then we'll introduce the, you know, the central and uh, more center East African groups, um, and then those will probably be a couple episodes uh, for those peoples. And then we'll, we'll kind of move on from there. But that being said, there will not be a new episode next week. Uh, that is Easter Sunday. Um, I'm going to take kind of that off. I'll be traveling. Um, 
and I could do the episode to kind of record it, but um, it's not going to be. Um, I, I just, you know, I haven't missed one so far since I've started the show. Um, it's just going to. But anyway, I, I'm planning on just doing a little bit more that weekend. So I'm just going to take it easy that week, and then I'll come back refreshed and uh, probably actually might do a couple episodes. I may do finish this section up and then do. A bonus episode at the same time. Um, I'm going to hold off on reviewing 10,000 BC, but I do need to do Alpha because we've already passed that kind of in the timeline. So I need to get that one out sooner rather than later. So probably take, well, I'm definitely taking next weekend off, but the week after, we might have two episodes. I don't know. We'll see. But I'd like to thank everyone for listening. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Uh, if you have any feedback, please feel free to reach out to me at my uh, email, which is waradrevpod at gmail.com. I'm also available uh, via DMs on Twitter, which I will include the link in the episode description for that. Uh, yeah, but again, thank you all, and I hope you continue listening and enjoying. And yeah, have a great day. Goodbye.